Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Government is the problem. This will not stand. This will not stand, this aggression against uh, Kuwait. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Mr. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. America is a strong force for peace. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. And my vice president has shot someone. Do you smell what Barack is cooking? You didn't build that. Give you all a big kiss, the women and the men. I'll I'll even kiss the men. Kiss those big, powerful men. Sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, the show for those who want a spirited, irreverent, humorous, and occasionally informative discussion on the latest geopolitical issues that are impacting the energy sector today. Here is your host, Jordan Driscoll. Welcome to the program, my huddled masses. I am the aforementioned Jordan Driscoll, your diminutive ATM of Reckless Opinion. Grab yourself a cup of coffee and let's get into it. And uh, this time I actually am recording um, in the middle of the day and I've got myself a uh, got myself a latte from the coffee joint. So we're going to have the inaugural sip. That's how we know the show has started. Mm. Very good. All right. So typically, you may have already noticed, this is usually the part of the program where I give a plug and, uh, and an advertisement for our sponsor. Uh, however, our previous sponsor has moved on to other projects that might better align with their long-term objectives. That being said, we very much appreciate the Empowerment Alliance for being our first sponsor and helping get the show kicked off. They um, basically seeded this thing and, and helped to get it going, and so we have nothing but love for those guys for, uh, for giving us a chance to come in here and, and make this happen. Uh, now, that being said, if you want to sponsor this show, please feel free to reach out to either Business Daddy Mark LaCour or myself. And until we have a new sponsor, I'm going to be doing a bit of shameless self-promotion, uh, or as I like to call it, my ghost sponsors. Okay, so first thing I'm going to plug is Petroledger Financial Services, the purveyor of the finest outsourced oil and gas accounting that you can get. Now, that is the location of my day job where I serve as the vice president of sales and marketing. We do APAR, uh, joint interest billing, regulatory reporting, revenue dispersal, land and division order work, you name it. If it's upstream or midstream accounting, we've got you covered. There will be a link in the show notes below to our website. So if you need some of that, come get it. The second is a friend of the show. Uh, and that is Arc Media Group. Now, Arc Media Group helps companies connect with their customers through digital marketing like websites, social media ads, SEO. They're basically outsourced marketing. If you don't have a marketing team or you have one but you need a little extra firepower for a project, Arc Media is who you want to call. Now, their website will also be in the show notes below. That is not my company, but they have done work for me in the past and they have done great work for me and they were really fantastic to work with. So I want to give them a little a little love in this since I've got, you know, I'm just flying free. There's no no rules anymore. There's no rules. Okay. Next piece of housekeeping is we got a, uh, is I got to give a shout out and a thank you to David Talk who left a very kind comment and a five-star review on iTunes. I deeply appreciate that. If you're enjoying the show or you want to leave a review, please feel free to do so. Uh, If you're not enjoying the show, I don't know why you're listening to me when Jordan Yates or Cam Ali just kicked off their uh, new shows on the network. Go check them out. Kim's show is Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in Industry, in Energy, excuse me. And Jordan's show is The Energy Pipeline. Uh, We also have uh, Kamal 
uh, Carr, I, I may be mispronouncing the last name, I apologize, whose show is Mixer Connections. Um, now, I haven't gotten to meet Kamal yet, but to be fair, I typically drift into the host staff meetings about a half hour late. So maybe I have, and I just don't remember it, or I missed uh, the introduction section of the meeting. Either way, check these shows out if they sound like they're your jam. Uh, we um, we certainly love having new hosts and new programs in the network. So let's uh, let's uh, you know cheers to them. Let's let them be successful. All right. So on tonight's episode, we are going to talk about why North Korea is such a pain in the ass to deal with. Okay. Now during the time of. Uh, uh, 2022, while the world was dealing with the continued fallout of COVID and suffering through Joe Biden's endless gaffes or wringing their hands over Trump's various impending legal cases or whether or not DeSantis would toss his hat in the ring for president, um, or if you're like in the rest of the world, the 90% of the rest of the planet that doesn't give a shit about our presidential elections and just views them like the curiosity sideshow that they actually are, most people were focused on the Russia boondoggle of an invasion. Uh, but one thing for pretty much everybody fell onto the back burner for a lot of folks, and that was um, North Korea, which actually got pointed out to by a listener uh, just a week or so ago who messaged me on LinkedIn and reminded me that, you know, I haven't gotten myself banned in North Korea yet, and I um, probably need to get on that. And you're right, I haven't, and we are going to address that tonight. Now, to be fair, that assumes that anyone in North Korea can even get this podcast, which is entirely dependent upon whether or not South Korea has changed the password on the router. So that's the first obstacle we have to overcome. But let's talk about North Korea. So in 2022, North Korea fired more missiles than in any other previous year, and eight of them were ICBMs. That's international uh, or intercontinental ballistic missiles. Hell, on the 24th of March... One missile soared 6,000 kilometers above the Earth in an arc and was the longest-range missile they've ever fired. What's more, because of the elevation of this missile and the arc it was able to do, it's very probable that North Korea now has the ability to strike anywhere on the planet with the exception of South America. So, <sighs> Carnival in Rio de Janeiro is safe. Everyone else is fucked. That's the takeaway here. Um, now, that is what we call in the business bad news because that means they can certainly hit Europe or the U.S. at this point. Um, furthermore, it's believed that North, North Korea has around 80 functional nuclear missiles, and they have stated their goal is to get to a stockpile of 300 weapons by 2030. Now, to be fair, it is widely suspected the accuracy of these weapons probably sucks. But when you are lobbing nuclear weapons at the U.S. or Europe, being a few hundred miles off your target is not the biggest problem that we're trying to deal with. Now, next on their list is getting tactical nuclear weapons, which are smaller in scale, they're shorter in range, and they're for more limited military objectives directly on the battlefield. Okay, so keep in mind that the North, whether they want to admit it or not, knows that they would lose a conventional war between the United States and South Korea. Hell, the United States has around 200 warships uh, in the general neighborhood and about a quarter of a million sailors and marines in the Western Pacific, and that's not even counting South Korea's decently sized military and the fact that South Korea, much like Taiwan, is a close ally of the U.S. and has been buying U.S. military hardware for literally decades. So they're a very advanced military. 
Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Jordan, they've already got ICBMs. Who gives a fuck about tactical nukes when you have the big boy nukes, right? Well, straw man in my head, I want to explain it to you. See, here's the deal. North Korea knows that should there be a conventional conflict, they will lose, okay? And if they launch their handful of nukes at the U.S., they know that some of them just aren't going to make it because, well, North Korea is not exactly known for their German engineering, their craftsmanship. These are not exactly the BMWs of nuclear weapons. Um, but some of them probably will make it across the pond. Some of them probably will not. They'll blow up halfway or whatever. But those that do make it all the way across, some of those will probably be intercepted. And a few of them will probably miss their targets, and then a few of them might actually hit their targets or something eh, vaguely close to their targets. So what happens then? If you're North Korea and you've decided to launch some ICBMs at the U.S. and you actually manage to land a nuke in the United States, what is going to happen? Well, obviously, we're going to blow the fuck out of your country. That's what's going to happen, right? If you nuke the U.S., there will be a retaliatory strike. If you nuke any nuclear-capable country, there's going to be a retaliatory strike. That's how these things work. That's why they exist. And um, North Korea doesn't exactly have uh, <laughs> the best interception capabilities, which uh, intercepting ICBMs is incredibly difficult anyways for a whole lot of math reasons that you need a PhD to understand. But the bottom line is we would turn North Korea in that scenario to a glow-in-the-dark parking lot made of glass. And they know this. Now, keep in mind, the one goal of Kim Jong-un, Kim Jong-un, now is that the right pronunciation? Doesn't really matter. He's a hermit dictator. Don't care. The point is, his entire goal is to perpetuate the Kim Jong line, to keep his little hermit nation going for as long as he can. And so, getting nuked into radioactive ash is not going to help that process, Right. Okay, so what happens then? Well, if they get nuked, they're out of the game. And if they only care about perpetuating the Kim Jong regime, then obviously strategic nukes are not as useful as they might appear on paper. Okay, so how do tactical nukes change the calculus? Well, here's how. If they see a war coming or a war kicks off, Tactical nukes can be used to destroy embedded defenses in South Korea or to wipe out U.S. naval formations in the Pacific, pretty much preventing a conflict by removing enemy fortifications and formations immediately. And if only military targets are being hit by tactical nukes and they aren't targeting civilian population centers, the U.S. will probably have a very hard time justifying or even authorizing the use of of nuclear weapons in response. Why? Because big boy strategic nuclear weapons are city killers. They wipe out giant miles and miles of, of, of everything, right? And so if only military installations and military uh, formations are being hit with tactical nukes, all of a sudden a retaliatory strike that basically bulldozes your entire civilization is not really very feasible. So <clears throat> in that case, that kind of ties our hands a little bit. And that, that puts the U.S. in the scenario in a bit of a pickle. And the North realizes that. I know we like to think of the North as this crazy crackpot land and, and Kim Jong and all of his little crony generals are a bunch of, you know, 
dipshit lunatics, but they're not that dumb. They have managed to hold on to this. They do on some level know exactly what they're doing. Okay, so this is why it's important for them to have access to strategic and tactical nukes. Tactical nukes will ensure that they have an ace in the hole they can play in the event of a conventional conflict without escalating to full civilization-ending nuclear war, while strategic nukes do provide that extra cushion they can use as a bully stick. Okay. So with this, the U.S. can't really seriously consider a military option to depose the Kim Jong dynasty. On the grounds, it's a political lose-lose, and it would probably result in either a limited or general nuclear conflict. And even without nukes, keep in mind North Korea has spent the past half century digging in on the border. They've got thousands of artillery encampments aimed at Seoul and the northern half of South Korea. And keep in mind, the capital of South Korea, Seoul, is only 50 kilometers. That's like 30 miles away from North Korea. And it's one of the most densely populated cities on the planet. And also keep in mind that about half of South Korea's population lives within range of these thousands of artillery pieces, which means Seoul is basically being held at gunpoint whether they want to admit it or not. Back in 2014, the South Korean and American militaries did a study that determined that within the first 24 hours of a conflict with North Korea, the North would take 2 million civilian casualties from the artillery barrage before the actual ground fight began. And this was back before the North had access to any kind of nuclear weapons. This is just purely from conventional artillery. That's a lot of dead bodies for first 24 hours. We haven't seen carnage like that possibly ever in an actual conflict. Um, and the only time we've gotten close to that would be World War II. So that's a big, hairy deal. So if you're wondering at all why we haven't just had some big dick energy and rolled into North Korea and steamrolled it, it's because while technically we could do it, we would be condemning millions of people to death from tens of thousands of rounds of artillery fire or possibly a nuclear holocaust, take your pick. And that's all before we got around to subduing the precious leader. Okay. So if we can't use military force to curtail the, the hermit kingdom, what about sanctions? We love to throw sanctions at everybody for everything. I mean, hell, look at Russia, look at Iran. Sanctions are one of our go-to pieces of economic leverage. Well, the problem is sanctions don't really work on North Korea because they've been so severely sanctioned for the past 70 years that additional sanctions don't do much. They are, for the most part, a surprisingly self-sufficient country. And the only major trading partner they have, which, by the way, is 90% of their international trade is with only one country, and that country is China, which is also the only country, aside from South Korea, that North Korea has a border with. So, if there's nothing we can do to compel China to stop being an economic lifelink to North Korea, sanctions will have zero effect because they only trade with one person who's not going to go along with sanctions, and also um, they're remarkably self-sufficient because they've had to be for the past majority of a century. Now, you may be saying to yourself... It seems like there's tension between China and North Korea, and that's true. There, There is some degree of tension. China is frequently not thrilled with North Korea's rather erratic actions and aggressive bellicose behavior. That's not really the way the Chinese like to do things. So you might be saying, okay, 
why do they bother having this much trade with them? Why do they prop up this little hermit kingdom? Well, for a couple of reasons. The first is that technically they are allies and have been for some time. There is technically a military defense agreement, and um, you have to understand, if you look at this from the point of view of being China, most of the countries that border China are not friendly to China. Japan, major U.S. ally. South Korea, major U.S. ally. Taiwan, major U.S. ally. The Philippines, major U.S. ally. Australia, major U.S. ally. There's not a lot of friendly faces for the for the People's Republic out there. Uh, they are very heavily boxed in, and I go into more detail about that in my China episode a couple weeks ago. But suffice it to say, if you're China, you need as many friends nearby as possible. The other thing is that as long as you have South Korea there, uh, or excuse me, North Korea, that acts as a buffer between South Korea having a border with China. And keep in mind, if South Korea had a border with China, what happens? Well, that enables the U.S. to put military bases right along the border with China, which is something that right now the U.S. cannot do. If you're China, it's in your tactical, strategic, and political best interest to have North Korea there as a spoiler. Also, with North Korea acting like a bunch of crazy bastards, that soaks up a lot of U.S. attention and brain span and resources dealing with them, which means less attention is placed on what China's doing. And as we all know, China's trying to get control of the Malacca Straits and the South China Sea and do, do their thing. So very much, very much um, in their best interest to keep that regime intact. Now, there's a couple other reasons, too. Uh, China also needs the Kim Jong region, uh, regime to continue existing um, because if it were to collapse, there are a handful of outcomes, and none of them are good for China. Imagine, if you will, there's a war. Time for my sip of coffee here. Mm. Okay, imagine, if you will, there's a war, and, um, and the Kim Jong regime collapses, the North Korean government collapses. And let's pretend for a second that they didn't launch a full-out nuclear assault on everybody. Even if that happened, what is likely to occur after that is a massive refugee crisis. Millions of people trying to find food, shelter, resources, supplies, survival. And they can't run south because the demilitarized zone, the most ironically named place on the planet, is home to the largest minefield in the world, as well as what would probably be an advancing South Korean and U.S. military force. Secondly, um, they don't want to be in the middle of that. So they're going to go north to the relatively easy-to-cross border with China, and China will then have millions of North Koreans who are hungry, who are scared, who are freaking out, rolling up to their, their country, rolling up to the doorstep, needing to be taken care of. It would be a huge burden in terms of resources. And it would also be a very destabilizing element in that region of China, which we all know that's not something anybody really wants. I mean, you want to talk about a border crisis, that would be a border crisis. Next, you have the fact that, as I said before, if the U.S. reunites the entire Korean peninsula in the event that this occurs, they can then station troops and air bases and artillery and all the things right at the doorstep of China, which is something that right now they don't have to worry about. Now, the third and final reason why China has to support North Korea politically is because North Korea has a massive stockpile of biological and chemical weapons. 
And if the Kim Jong regime were to collapse, that means China has to consider the possibility that tons and tons and tons of chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons could end up lost or in the hands of a less predictable government or a less friendly government than the one that's in place now. It could end up in the hands of rogue forces, or possibly this really dangerous shit could just be stolen, and that's right at their doorstep. China doesn't need uncontrolled weapons of mass destruction unaccounted for on the transom of their own country. So it's in their best interest to keep North Korea, such as it is, in place because some degree of control over the situation is better than anarchy at your doorstep. So they have no choice but to keep supporting Kim Jong. That's the devil they know. All right, so we've established military strikes aren't going to work. We've established that sanctions really aren't going to do much of anything. So why not just get James Bond and Jason Bourne to slip into the country and strangle Kim Jong-un in the middle of the night with some piano wire for the good of the world? Just have him assassinated, right? Well, here's the problem. In 2022, North Korea passed a law that states that in the event that Kim Jong-un is assassinated, their military is instructed to launch their nukes at the United States, who would certainly be the culprit, according to them, in retaliation. So one, if he dies of anything other than ostensibly natural causes, they're instructed to launch nuclear weapons. So obviously we don't want to um, trigger a nuclear holocaust. Um, but even if that didn't happen, even if we did manage to whack Kim Jong-un in a single individual strike uh, uh, to get rid of him, there's still the problem that we don't know who would take over the country. Right now, Kim Jong-un's sister looks like the most likely candidate. She seems to be the one who is most in favor. But the reality of it is they have always kept their chain of command and their chain of succession, uh, succession deeply mysterious. So we don't really know who the next in line is. We don't know what their personality is like. We don't know what their disposition is. And it is a total and complete dictatorship over there, which means you'd be handing these mountains of weapons of mass destruction to a complete unknown. Maybe you get somebody who's a peacenik, but very likely you get some sort of a general who uh, maybe just says, fuck it, let's, uh, let's spray South Korea with all the mustard gas and VX gas we've got because I'm bored today. We just don't know. All right, so then there's the possibility that if you kill him and there is no designated successor, there then is a massive civil war and you have all of the exact same problems I outlined before with all of the refugees and all of the, the unaccounted for weapons of mass destruction. So none of that is particularly good. There are no good ways to deal with this. Hell, back in 1994, old slippery dick Clinton, old Bill Clinton, he had decided to put together a strike to get rid of the North Korean nuclear plant that was producing its first fissionable materials. Now, Clinton eventually backed off from this idea because he was concerned about the artillery barrage that would probably impact Seoul in the event that they used F-117 stealth fighters to bomb this. He assumed the North Koreans would predict that the U.S. was responsible for it and would do a retaliatory strike on Seoul and would kill a whole lot of people. And Clinton didn't want to be responsible for that. All right. <clears throat> so then there was a slight thawing in relations. Um, there were some deals that were set up during the Clinton years to try and bring North Korea to the table. But in 2002, 
we had President Bush, who declared very publicly, very loudly, and very often that North Korea was part of an axis of evil on the same scale as Iran and Iraq. Needless to say, that did not improve our relationship with North Korea. And while we're talking about that uh, and the whole idea of trying to diplomatically convince North Korea to give up its weapon of mass destruction or its weapons of mass destruction, specifically its nuclear weapons, let's talk about how that's worked historically. Because again, it's this show, you know, we're getting a history lesson. All right. So historically, there have only been three countries who have ever had a nuclear uh, or who have had nuclear weapons and who have voluntarily given them up. And we're going to talk about all three of those in brief. The first is, ironically, Iraq. Iraq had nuclear weapons back in the late 80s, early 90s. And after uh, uh, the first Gulf War, part of the treaty, if you'll call it that, the agreement for the U.S. not just rolling from Kuwait into Iraq and just blowing the shit out of Saddam Hussein, was that he was going to turn over all of his nuclear weapons and hand them off to the U.N. and wash his hands of weapons of mass destruction. Now, Saddam did that. I mean, Saddam was a piece of shit for a lot of other reasons, but he did do that because he was terrified of a U.S. invasion, especially after he'd seen his military get just wrecked in 100 hours by the coalition. So what happened to Iraq? Well, in 2003, the U.S. invaded Iraq. Now, the pretense was that they had weapons of mass destruction, which later turned out to be uh, false. <laughs> uh, but at any rate, Saddam's regime was toppled, and uh, Iraq is in the state it's in today. Okay. Well, the next one is Libya. In 2003, Libya voluntarily eliminated, voluntarily eliminated all of their weapons of mass destruction, including chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons. And the Gaddafi regime was then brought down by NATO in 2013-2014 uh, during the Arab Spring. NATO provided military strikes and intervention from U.S. forces and NATO forces, and they were brought down. So Gaddafi killed his regime, brought down <clears throat> less than a decade after he surrendered his nuclear arsenal. Yeah, same thing with, uh, with Iraq, right? They surrendered the nuclear arsenal in um, uh, 1992, by 2003, 11 years later, they're getting invaded. Libya surrenders their nuclear arsenal in um, 2003, and all of a sudden in 2013, 2014, about a decade later, they get whacked. They get taken off the board. And the last country that had a nuclear arsenal that voluntarily surrendered it was Ukraine, who ironically inherited a massive nuclear weapons stockpile from the collapsed Soviet Union in 1991. And in fact, the amount of nukes in uh, Ukraine at the time of their independence would have made them the third largest nuclear power on the planet behind the U.S. and Russia. Now, in 1991, they voluntarily handed over to Russia, or excuse me, in 1994, they handed over to Russia uh, all of their nuclear weapons in the Budapest mor uh, Memorandum. And in that memorandum... And get ready for a laugh. In that memorandum, Russia said they would take custody of all of Ukraine's nukes in exchange they would, into perpetuity, respect and agree to Ukraine's borders and their total independence. Wow, that sure didn't work, did it? 
Now, there are some factors, you know, it was unknown whether or not Ukraine could have maintained the weapons or if they had the codes to launch them or whatever. But the point is, they gave up their nukes. Within 20 years, uh, they've been invaded. So every single country that has handed over the keys to their nuclear kingdom has gotten taken out within a decade or two of that happening. If you're North Korea and you're looking at world history, it sends a pretty clear message. If you surrender your nukes, your regime will be toppled. So if you're Kim Jong-un, you're never going to seriously consider doing that because you've seen what's happened every time it's occurred. You're going to cling to those nukes with all your might because that's the key to you staying in power and staying independent. So with no other options available, this is why North Korea is a massive pain in the ass to deal with and why no one's ever been able to make any kind of real headway. You can't militarily invade them without killing millions of South Koreans. You can't have them assassinated without kicking off World War III. You can't convince them to give up his nukes because anytime anyone's done that, they've gotten whacked. So really, and sanctions are off the table because they've already been sanctioned for the better part of a century. So really, you don't have any cards to play here. That's why nobody is getting any kind of headway with North Korea. Now, South Korea did in the past couple of years, and I talked a little bit about this in another episode, um, they gave some very serious consideration to starting their own nuclear program. And the reason they considered that was predominantly because they were worried about what happens if there's an actual nuclear war with the U.S. stepping to defend them to that same level. And to be fair, the U.S. has always been a little ambivalent not ambivalent. They've been a little ambiguous in how far they would go. We have a shit ton of troops stationed there, but will we really nuke North Korea if it came down to it? Well, I don't know. And the reality of it is we probably won't know unless we ever get in that situation. It depends very much on the president's disposition and what the overall situation looks like. But if you're South Korea, that's not a really reassuring answer. And so South Korea has had a bit of a push to start generating nuclear weapons, and um, that's been especially a big deal in the past couple of years. This is concerning for a lot of reasons. One, China obviously does not want a second nuclear-armed country on the Korean Peninsula right next door to them, um, for all the obvious reasons. Two, North Korea doesn't want South Korea to have nukes. They've already got the U.S. nuclear umbrella theoretically protecting them. They don't want more, and the U.S. and most of the world doesn't really want more countries with nukes floating around. There's already too many nukes as it is. Nobody wants more of them. So uh, here recently, and this just happened within the past two months, there was a big hairy meeting between uh, Biden and between the president of South Korea, and they hammered out what was called the Washington Declaration, which basically established that— um, there would be uh, no further pursuit of South Korea into developing nuclear weapons. In exchange, the U.S. gave public assurances they would continue to support them and defend them. And also, they would start letting the South Koreans know what the secret plans to defend them were in the event that a military conflict starts and the South Koreans could start being much more heavily involved in knowing what was happening. The U.S. had been kind of keeping all that very under wraps, they're now involving the South Koreans a little bit more, which ultimately is probably a good thing. And at the end of the day, anything to keep more nukes from being created by, um, by, by another country on the South Korean, on the Korean peninsula, uh, 
Yeah, that's ideal. So there we go. That is why North Korea is such a massive pain in the ass to deal with. Um, hope you guys like this one. That's what we got time for today. If you uh, do want to sponsor the show, like I said, reach out to myself or uh, Mark LaCour, and I'll see you guys on the next one. Until then, this is Jordan Driscoll reminding you that I will never surrender my nuclear deterrence. See you guys later. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com. Thank you.